Salute Talks is produced by Tenocha Estacadal, Josh McCormack, and the... <laughs> Brinkley, you're messing up my recording, son. <laughs> Hi everyone, I'm Josh McCormick, and this is Salute Talks. The coronavirus pandemic swept across America and the world like wildfire in 2020. It was the cause of hundreds of thousands of deaths, severe harm, and widespread consequences in almost every facet of life. This year came with the hope of a return to some normalcy through a scientific breakthrough, a vaccine for COVID-19. Since vaccinations became available, new cases and rates of mortality have dropped. Still, there are those who are hesitant to receive the dose. Today, we are joined by Dr. Eliseo J. Perez-Estable, director of the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities, as well as numerous researchers, providers, and a COVID-19 vaccine clinical trial participant, in hopes of providing a greater insight into how this vaccine was developed. These experts discuss the scientific pathway the step-by-step process that ensures safety for those who receive such treatment. So I'm Katia Corrado. I'm one of the um, infectious disease physicians that work over at Harbor UCLA. We're also part of the Lindquist Institute that does a lot of research projects. And so I've been involved um, with uh, mostly pre-COVID with HIV and PrEP research. And um, in COVID and post-COVID, in vaccine trials and um, treatment trials. So I do um, clinical um, research. Um, we do inpatient uh, services. Um, so a little bit of everything, which is quite exciting. Hi, I'm Emelina. I'm a community health educator with Care2 Health Equity Center. I graduated my bachelor's in health science, and I'm a clinical I'm a voluntary clinical trial participant with the COVID-19 um, vaccine trials. Hi, everyone. I'm uh, Felix Valbuena, um, Colombian-American um, uh, family physician. I um, main role is the CEO of a federally qualified health center, the Community Health and Social Services Center in Southwest Detroit. Uh, but I still see patients uh, two half days a week at the center. And I'm also clinical faculty at uh, Henry Ford Hospital in the Department of Family Medicine. So I round at the hospital with, uh, with the residents. And uh, we take care of approximately 12,000 uh, individuals from the community um, in Southwest Detroit, which is our uh, Latino um, community, primarily origin from Mexico, from uh, Jalisco and Nuevo León, um, and then a few uh, Central Americans, South Americans, and uh, Caribbeans. Uh, yeah, so I'm uh, Jaime de Ville, um, born in uh, Peru and went to medical school also in Peru, did my residency here, and I'm a professor of pediatric infectious diseases at UCLA in Westwood. And um, my main research also HIV in children. I am the principal, site principal investigator for impact which is one of the NIH-funded uh, networks for um, treatment of HIV in women, children, adolescents, and also have um, the Part D Ryan White um, grant for um, 
Los Angeles, and that in, uh, includes seven centers here, also dealing with uh, women, children, and adolescents um, affected with HIV, uninsured, um, undocumented. Uh, and I am, for, for the purposes of this, I am a member of the Institutional Review Board for the past uh, 10 years. Um, Dr. Perez-Eslabli, can you kind of give us a, an overview of people of color's experience with COVID-19, specifically from kind of a very bird's eye view perspective? We're going to get into the details a little bit later. That's quite a topic to jump into. <laughs> um, I think that as I reflect on these last 15 months, uh, the striking uh, disparities that became evident within a few weeks of uh, the onset of the pandemic in the U.S. Um, was something that I, I think were just uh, remarkable for their magnitude um, and consistency. Um, Latinos and African Americans have clearly been the most affected uh, in large part due to the urbanicity of the pandemic, the density of population, and the importance of, uh, of being exposed to other people um, and because people live together in more dense parts of the city and work in jobs that uh, do not have the privilege of teleworking. Um, nothing much has changed. Uh, obviously, the case rates are now really going down, which is terrific for all of us. But um, if you look at the curves from the CDC, Latinos and African-Americans have had excess uh, case rates, excess um, hospitalizations, and excess deaths um, from day one. Uh, and in fact, Latinos have actually been the leading group in terms of race, ethnic groups. There are pockets and regional differences that are clear, but nationally, um, this has been very consistent. And it is because of structural reasons uh, that I alluded to earlier, not the idea initially thought, oh, it's more obesity or more diabetes. You know, that's not, that contributes to morbidity, but it's not the reason people get infected. I completely agree with Dr. Perez-Estable. I think as, um, as a physician of color who works at a safety net hospital, um, when COVID hit us and our hospitals were lined with um, our young Latinos, our young African-Americans who were dying. Um, you went to the clinics, people who were getting tested. There was so much fear, so much misunderstanding, so much um, concern from not only those who were getting infected, but also from the family members. It was it's, it's a time that I don't ever want to go back to because you experience that and then you turn around and you see all the fear, misunderstanding that is also in the community when it comes to people taking vaccines, when it comes to people um, saying that they do want to get the monoclonal antibodies that we do have for outpatients now. It is, um, it is a very scary time to be in the middle of what I can describe only as a war zone in the hospital, and then try to describe that to the community. 
Dr. Perez-Estable, if you can talk about specifically some issues like a lack of insurance, lack of accessibility to healthcare, um, some of the almost systemic societal issues that made it harder for Latinos to experience COVID-19. Absolutely. Healthcare insurance is the first step to get healthcare. Uh, you need a place and a, and a clinician as well. Uh, Latinos have the highest rate of uninsured uh, population in the U.S. The uh, Affordable Care Act helped, but it didn't make this go away. It's double what it is for uh, the general population. So over 20% are uninsured. Uh, and much of this relates to the type of employment they have. So their employer-based insurance coverage is not there because of the type of employment, not as people think, oh, they're undocumented, that's why they're not getting insurance. I just wanna make sure that's, that's clear. So when the, when the pandemic hit, uh, healthcare shut down and uh, everybody went, was afraid. I mean, doctors were afraid. I mean, we saw the stories coming out of New York City. Uh, we, we saw what had happened in, in Italy. People were really afraid. Well, what are we gonna do? People are dropping dead, what do we do? And so the clinics uh, went into, we're only gonna do telemedicine, we're only gonna take care of people who don't have COVID. You know, there are a variety of responses that happened. It took about three months to, for things to start coming back. What happens with telemedicine is that, um, you know, I have a computer, I have Wi-Fi, I have broadband, uh, and a lot of, all of us do, but a lot of people don't. <laughs> a lot of people use their cell phone for access to the internet, they don't have unlimited data plans, so they're paying for data. Uh, and so you, as a doctor, say, well, let me see you. Let, put, let me see you on uh, FaceTime or on whatever. Uh, and they'll say, no, no, I'm just doing a phone call because they don't want to burn their data doing a doctor's visit um, on the one hand. And on the other hand, you know, they're only they're doing telemedicine is great. Uh, for many things, uh, and I'm glad that it, it got accepted uh, by the uh, healthcare coverage, uh, uh, but uh, it, and it should be, you know, continue to be whatever 20, 25% of our, of our work potentially, uh, and that will increase access and improve care for certain populations for sure. Um, but Latinos and, and African Americans and other minorities all delayed um, not just routine care, which everybody did, but emergency care and urgent care. So they ended up coming to, to the emergency room with COVID at more advanced stages. Um, now, so we don't have a, a therapeutic and antiviral to give them uh, that really works wonder, wonderfully well, but um, it's always easier to take care of people who are not as sick uh, than when they get so sick. So I think that that's been shown, you know, they, you know, higher rates of emergency room visits. So that means less access to their doctor. So they ended up going to the emergency room. They showed up sicker at the emergency room, more likely to be hospitalized and more likely to get severe COVID and die. And, and I think that that storyline uh, followed us all the way through both the summer surge and the winter surge of COVID. Uh, fortunately now, as everything is winding down and more and more people are vaccinated, we expect um, that to uh, be minimized, uh, but we're not out of this yet. And so I do think we need to continue to monitor this carefully. Specifically, um, to, like in the winter search, like Dr. Perez Sablo was saying, um, it wasn't uncommon to see families being hospitalized, right? So in our population, in our multi-generational families, 
where someone had to go to work or um, got infected, brought it back home. And it was not uncommon to have grandmother on the fifth floor, to have dad on the second floor being hospitalized, intubated with COVID. Yeah, and I can echo that our, our, our population uh, being essential workers and uh, many individuals living in one household made it difficult uh, when someone tested positive to, to do the uh, isolation uh, that, that uh, um, we were asking everybody to do. And so uh, families were, uh, one individual in the family would get it and, and um, others uh, in the household would pretty much everybody um, um, would get it. And then as far as uh, insurance, you know, our, our population, um, about half, um, only qualify for emergency services, only Medicaid in Michigan, which doesn't cover all your preventive um, and chronic disease care. And it is because of residency uh, status. So we did see um, that as a challenge, but because we're a federally qualified health center and because we take care of anybody that walks through the door and we've been around the community for 51 years now, um, we were able to step up and uh, um, you know, take care of uh, uh, individuals at the center. We never closed. And we did do uh, voice only um, because of the, the lack of technology. We did do voice only calls uh, with those that, that, that we could uh, in the interim to make sure that, uh, you know, they had their medications and that they could, um, you know, come in for a lab and then we could, you know, manage. It's not the ideal way of doing it, but that we were able to, to continue some of that care, um, you know, in the heat of um, the surges that we've had. Dr. Presestable, I wanted to ask you, um, can you give us um, an overview of your understanding of the vaccine? Why is it safe? And address some of the concerns such as microchipping, you know, um, that this vaccine wasn't safe in, in that ballpark? Right. Well, it, it starts with a, my own personal experience. I, I was vaccinated uh, with the Moderna product and uh, I had a, a sore arm. Um, and uh, yes, uh, people do get side effects, but uh, I think the, the track record so far, you know, it's not very often that you get to see what giving 100 million doses of vaccine does to a population. And, and boy, have, have we, do we have experience. Um, the development of this platform, this messenger RNA platform, which is uh, is basically uh, uh, the, a, 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 a nucleic acid, a molecular messenger, carries a prescription, so to speak, to to, to tell the cells what to do, um, uh, was really a product of a of at least ten plus years of basic research that started uh, initially with the SARS-CoV-1 back in 2003, and then was uh, explored further with the Ebola and HIV-related vaccine uh, exploration. So it's a, it's a great example of how basic science research uh, that gets launched into one area and how you get a vaccine uh, um, a virologist, uh, Dr. Graham, who was interested in respiratory syncytial virus, working with a structural biologist, uh, about, you know, let's study the structure of viruses. Now you can take these pictures of viruses and get incredible detail uh, and see how they can come up with a way of addressing this. Uh, lends itself to this pandemic, which, of course, none of them saw coming uh, in, in the way. They, they were ready uh, because they knew that they had the technology worked out. They knew how to do it. And then when they got the virus, they were able, once they got the genetic um, sequencing of the virus, uh, they were able to quickly produce uh, the right protein uh, that could be packaged in a in, in a lipid uh, 
a package so that it could be delivered to the body and the cells. And Moderna, of course, uh, had other technology. They were able to work together with NIH. This is NIH's work was directly with Moderna on this particular uh, product. And, we, you know, we're proud that uh, Kismekia Corbett, who uh, is an African-American scientist who had been working there at NIH for about five years, uh, was a key uh, leader in this, along with Dr. Graham. Um, uh, it's just a remarkable story. Uh, and so it didn't just happen. This was the product of years and years and years of hard work by scientists working in an area where you don't know where it's going to lead to, but you, you know that you're doing careful science and it leads to advancing knowledge. Um, the, the vaccine product uh, is a, a, probably a, a revolutionary advance in how we can do this uh, because in the past, we've, what we've done with vaccines is we give uh, um, just a protein of the, of, the, of the microbe, of the virus or the bacteria, to try to stimulate the body to produce antibodies. And that has side effects and, and you know, it works variably. Uh, one of the big questions left now is how long will this protection last? <laughs> and boy, I had COVID. Uh, do I need the vaccine still? And both of those questions, uh, yes, you do need the vaccine because the natural immunity is probably more narrow than the vaccine-induced immunity seems to be quite good for all the variants that we've identified. Um, and uh, we don't know how long the protection will last, but it's been six months, so I think at least six months is, uh, is the minimum, but probably closer to uh, at least a year is uh, the likelihood that, that the scientists uh, who are experts in this are projecting now. So I just wanted to back up, because um, there's been a lot of conversation that, um, especially those who are hesitant to take the vaccine, have talked about of how could they have gotten this through so quickly? How can, how can this be safe? But something you were talking about earlier is that vaccine science, the different kind of vaccines that were developed before, in, in a way they build off one another. Is that correct? Yes and no. I mean, uh, the, if we had followed the, the standard attenuation of a virus, and I think some of the groups internationally have done this, um, that would probably be a minimum of two years. Uh, and there is, I think, at least a theoretical risk that if you give someone an attenuated virus that they could actually get sick, especially if their own immune system isn't completely intact. Um, uh, this was a, uh, this is a, a new approach. So it didn't really build off of prior vaccine technology, only in the sense of a carrier. So you, if you put the, the antigen, the, the protein to stimulate immunity onto another protein, uh, the adenovirus carriers uh, model that um, is used in the, let's say the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, where they use a, either a chimp or a human adenovirus carrier. That model is a, one been used before. So yes, that's, that's building off a of prior. But the messenger RNA platform is new. Uh, not new from the laboratory, but new in application. Dr. Stable, um, one other um, question for the conversation that we'll be having about um, scientific pathway. Could you give an overview from your perspective of the pathway and how has that work influenced the way that you talk about COVID-19? Well, you know, um, I think the idea behind the whole idea of, the, of a scientific pathway is that, you know, we have multiple people working on different aspects of the process. Uh, as I described more of the basic science process, but also the 
uh, production and implementation. Um, there are many scientists uh, working on different aspects of this. Um, we, we are approaching this in, a, in as rigorous a way as possible. Um, and, and we are definitely not, uh, ex not expecting to come up with a, a product that is anything other than safe. Um, uh, I, I'm proud of the, the scientists and the staff who work under, under uh, the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities. We're not involved in that other work over there, but we're all part of the same uh, institution, the same team. Um, and, uh, and I think that uh, once, a, once we have a vaccine candidate and we see it tested, uh, we also need to get it, in, you know, the needles into arms. Uh, and in order to do that, we have to address what people think, the misconceptions, the mistrust, the, the idea, well, how do I know it's safe? You know, how did you do it so quickly? All these questions, uh, and, and then address the misinformation that is coming out of, uh, out of many uh, sources. Uh, and so building this trust in science is, is fundamental, and then building the trust in us, those of us present here, uh, the messenger, you know, your local trusted messenger. Um, we could not do this alone at NIH uh, or as government scientists. Uh, in fact, uh, because we are from the federal government, people will say, well, you're being told what to say, right? So it's really the, the, the doctors, the nurses, the pharmacists out there working with the community, uh, both in community settings and in, in, in academic settings and hospitals, um, in a variety of places, they really, uh, they, they have to, you know, understand and agree with what we're producing. If they didn't, we couldn't get anywhere. Uh, we couldn't advance this at all. And I was uh, pretty impressed of how everybody did, did respond. Uh, this is not just about uh, efficacy, but it's about safety. Um, and in the setting of, uh, of so many people having died and, and being affected also long-term, you know, we don't really know what the uh, people who have had the long-term effects of COVID, uh, what will that come out to be over time? We're, we're launching studies to look at that now. Um, uh, that this, the cost of the vaccine, and I'm referring to the human cost, you know, what the side effects, or maybe some people will have severe allergic reactions and, there's some cases reported of severe adverse effects. Uh, we heard about the, the clotting problems that happen in, uh, with one of, the, one of the vaccines. I think um, that was, it's pretty uncommon, pretty rare, but it did lead to a pause of the Johnson. That reflects how, how much attention is being paid to safety to make sure that, you know, it, it's sort of, if we're giving something for prevention, we set the highest possible bar for safety. And I think that in this case, uh, with this crisis uh, globally, um, uh, those principles have been adhered to uh, you know, without fault. Dr. DeVille, as someone who serves on these institutional review boards, you're helping to kind of oversee the research study and its participants. Can you actually just describe for our readers what an institutional review board is and how it kind of functions? Uh, yeah, so um, I'm a member of, the, of our uh, institutional office of uh, human subject protection, which is the name that we give to the institutional review board. And the, the mission of, of the IRB, like it's commonly uh, referred to, is to ensure that uh, any proposal 
of, of, of studies that are presented to be done in the institution are uh, beneficial, if possible, to, to subjects, but most importantly, that uh, safety of uh, the participants is ensured. And that, that includes um, both the scientific review, whether uh, we think that um, the studies that is proposed is scientifically sound. In the case of um, COVID vaccine studies, that we, we reviewed a number of them that were done here um, to review the preliminary data. Since we did uh, the phase three, which is the were the efficacy, some of the efficacy studies for for three of the vaccines, two of them become licensed, one did not um, yet. The um, the review is not just the, the the scientific soundness, but also safety, uh, informed consent, and whether the potential participant is receiving all elements of uh, of um, the trial that will affect them and what are the requirements that they understand in the case of, of these um, studies that there is a placebo element and what is the ratio between those who get the, the actual uh, vaccine in this case or those who get just a placebo and what will be the, the, the safety um, measures that are taking place. For, for studies, you take a more rigorous approach that you will take once the vaccine is approved and you pay special attention to both um, adverse events that are sort of expected for, for vaccines. For example, everybody expects to have a sore arm or maybe feel a little bit under the weather uh, for a day or two, maybe a little bit feverish or, or tired, and also to look for more um, more severe adverse events within uh, the first 30 days of, of after vaccination, but especially after um, after the, the initial vaccine, the, the first few days are the most important. So that gets reviewed. Um, whatever um, other language that needs to be there for 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 people to make an informed decision needs to, needs to be present. We have our own institutional uh, requirements in terms of, of potential benefits, uh, if compensation is awarded to potential participants to just ensure that it is sufficient to cover costs, for example, but it's not high enough to, to, to be uh, considered as coercive. Some studies might, might want to offer a financial incentive that might be out of proportion with um, what is being um, offered in we don't uh, think that if we don't think that's appropriate, we kind of um, decrease that. Uh, some studies don't get approved because of that reason. And uh, so there, there's a la layers upon layers of review that go into an approval of this um, of these studies. And sometimes it takes takes a few passes through the through the board. These all get discussed in a full board, and sometimes more than once. For COVID purposes, because these were done in a rapid way, special ad hoc meetings were, were scheduled when, when these reviews were taken because of the, of the time constraints and the, the, the need for, for them to be moved quickly. But that did not take away from the rigorous um, 
analysis and consideration of of, of the studies that is done uh, routinely. For sure. And from that perspective during these trials, um, something that's come up a lot, especially with some of the inequities and disparities from a systemic standpoint that have come up is the need for more people of color, specifically Latinos, in clinical trials. As a Latino who's working with these institutional review boards, could you talk about the importance um, of having a diversity of people in these trials and how it can impact the outcome of certain studies, research that you all are doing, like the vaccine? Two things come into, in, in, into view, and uh, we keep struggling with um, the lack, for example, of uh, Spanish language consent, and that, that's something that we always insist on, on having to increase the, the, the chance of participation in, in, in these trials. The second one that, um, that has been identified as a barrier is the, the level of outreach to the community that we are allowing um, for, for, for these studies. It, since we are an academic medical center, um, many of, of the participants for this particular study were um, healthcare workers. And uh, we, we paid special attention to, to offer this um, in, in flyers that were uh, also in, in, in Spanish. But this is really a problematic issue. I think that the participation in, in clinical trials of, of minority populations, in particular uh, African-American and Hispanic, has a long way to go. And um, more efforts and, and more resources need to be allocated to, to increase the representation of, of our populations into these trials because we still don't see a proportional representation, at least to, to what our population looks like in this, still in 2021. Thanks to our guests for joining us on this episode, which was produced through a partnership between Salute America and the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities. This episode was part one of a three-part series on COVID-19 vaccinations and the disparities highlighted by the pandemic over the past year. In our next episode, we expand on the scientific pathway discussion into how the COVID-19 vaccine has been distributed to patients and how providers have been spreading the message. Well, from, from the institutional review point of view, what we look for is first and foremost, the safety of the trial participants. Learn more about this episode and this series by visiting salu.to slash salute talks. Salute Talks is produced by Tino Chastacottle, Josh McCormick, and Julia Weiss. It is executive produced by Dr. Amelie Ramirez. The music heard on this podcast is produced by Bonus Points. Find Salute America online by visiting salute-america.org. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and other social platforms at Salute America. Watch our award-winning videos on YouTube by visiting salute.to slash video. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening, and as always, we hope you enjoyed.